Wedded bliss turns into a dark mystery in Lucy Foley's The Guest List. The thrilling mystery is set on the coast of Ireland, and it's my latest pick to listen to on Audible. The twists and turns do not disappoint. Listening to it felt addicting because I needed to know what happened next. The time is now more than ever to embrace the breathtaking, sinister, and shocking audio titles, especially with brand new exclusive thrillers that are guaranteed to keep you on the edge of your seat. As an Audible member, you can choose one title a month to keep from their entire catalog. It is the home of storytelling, after all. New members can try Audible free for 30 days. Visit audible.com slash snapped or text snapped to 500-500. That's audible.com slash snapped or text snapped to 500-500. If I asked you how many subscriptions you have, would you be able to list all of them and how much you're paying? If you would have asked me this question before I started using Rocket Money, I would have said yes, but let me tell you, I would have been so wrong. I can't believe how many I had and all the money I was wasting. Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions, monitors your spending, and helps lower your bills. Rocket Money has over 5 million users and has helped save its members an average of $720 a year with over 500 million in canceled subscriptions. Stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com slash Wondery. That's rocketmoney.com slash Wondery. Rocketmoney.com slash Wondery. A gruesome discovery on an isolated road in Virginia brings an unthinkable crime to light. He was a very small man. He was folded up like a pretzel. He died from an asphyxial death. No one had ever left any type of clue that he was gone. Where was the family? Why didn't they report him missing? As the mystery unravels, detectives pinpoint a killer consumed by greed. There was nothing left of the house because of the way he remortgaged everything. You sell the home for $90,000 and you're getting $4,000 check back. He's destroyed, basically. I mean, he's done. Can investigators solve the case before another victim is targeted? When it was said and done, there were hundreds and hundreds of thousands of dollars stolen from people. How bad do you have it when you're defrauding your own children? Your house of cards is tumbling in at this point. The charade is over. Fourteenth, 1996, Loudoun, Virginia. Around 3 a.m., Deputy Clark Jackson with the Loudoun County Sheriff's Office pulls into a remote overlook located in Harper's Ferry Park. I always go to the overlook because I found several stolen cars and I found got a couple of people who wanted had warrants for their arrest. There are no cars parked at the overlook tonight. But Deputy Jackson notices something strange sitting by a dumpster at the end of the parking lot. I parked my cruiser up by the barricade and I got out. I noticed there was a huge steamer trunk. And I kind of kicked it with my foot and it wouldn't budge. And I'm going, man, what is in this thing? There's duct tape wrapped around each end, so I had to cut the duct tape off. And it wasn't locked, so I opened it up. It looked like a brand new duffel bag. 
And I unzipped the whole zipper on the first duffel bag, and when I opened it up, there's another duffel bag, same color, same description. I tried to lift the duffel bag out with one hand, I couldn't budge it. I'm going, there must be pieces of iron, must be scrap metal inside this steamer trunk. Then, Deputy Jackson unzips the second bag. I unzipped it, and I see this one eyeball looking at me. And I'm going, holy smoke, it is a body. Deputy Jackson radios for backup, and within minutes, investigators arrive at the scene. They are quickly able to determine that the body inside the trunk is that of an elderly male. The body was emaciated. The victim did not appear to be deceased for a long period of time. It appeared to be some drag marks on the ground where the chest would have been drugged over to the, the final resting place near the trash can. There was no identification in the trunk at all. There appeared to look like blood on the outside of it. While the medical examiner prepares to transport the body for autopsy, deputies speak with a park ranger to find out whether they'd noticed anything odd that evening. Park ranger, approximately 8.30 p.m., was driving by the area. She didn't notice anything unusual or suspicious. At approximately 10.30 p.m., she came back through to make sure the gate was locked, and she noticed a trunk that was setting at the overlook near a dumpster. At that point, she thought that she would come back the next day and address it. It did not appear that he was killed there, and if, for a couple of reasons. One, with the, with the park ranger's timing, it had been almost impossible for someone to have killed him and put them inside the bag and in the trunk. But the other part was his body was decomposing. With no clues pointing to the killer, detectives focus on identifying their victim. We took his fingerprints. They were submitted to an FBI um, lab, and they tried to identify him. Unfortunately, that was inconclusive at the time. We had his DNA, but there was nothing set to match it against. And DNA was just in its, in its beginnings back in 1996. Without him being either an offender of some type or being entered in for a serious crime, the database was very limited at that point. While Loudoun County detectives wait for autopsy results, they scour missing persons records from surrounding states. No one had ever reported him missing. No one had ever left any type of, of clue as to that he was gone. He would have been a parent to someone, and certainly either siblings or children, stepchildren, grandchildren. We were really interested as to why there was no inquiries at all. On May 16, 1996, detectives received the results of the autopsy on their John Doe. He died from an asphyxial death, either manual compression of the neck or suffocation or a combination of both. The medical examiner also discovered that before the victim was suffocated, he was drugged. They discovered he had high levels of diphenhydramine, which is basically Benadryl, in his system. The substance spotted on the outside of the trunk, originally suspected to be blood, is identified by the lab. When the exams were completed on it, we realized it weren't blood at all. That material was tested and identified as fingernail polish. 
After hitting a dead end with the presumed blood evidence, investigators find another promising lead from the autopsy results. It was discovered that he had had heart surgery at some point where he had had a ring installed, which did have a serial number. The investigator who originally had the case contacted the company and said, where would this serial number have been issued to? It was by hospital. And at that time, John Hopkins was the distributor of that particular heart piece. They did not track them by patient at that point in time, so they could not go back and find the specific patient. After months of trying to trace the ID of their John Doe, detectives are desperate for leads, and they turn to the public for help. One of the issues was that the face was somewhat decomposing, so therefore, in order to try to get photographs out uh, to identify him, his face had to be digitally enhanced so that he could be recognized better. There was a forensic sketch that was put out into the media to attempt to identify the victim. They aired that on several episodes of Unsolved Mysteries and America's Most Wanted. So there was efforts to identify him there. We got calls. It just wasn't the right phone calls for the right person in this particular case. Is the Harper's Ferry John Doe doomed to be another unsolved mystery? The body could not be identified for years and years. Loudoun County Sheriff's Office uh, tried really hard over and over again, and they could not identify the fingerprints, because that's all they really had. During the time period of when the body was found in May of 1996, up until early 2003, there were no major leads developed during that time period. And it wasn't until it was opened as a cold case by investigator Oxman that it really started to move along. Coming up, after six years, investigators finally put a name to their John Doe. We hear Bobby give kind of a, you know, war hoop, and I look and say, what's going on? But new information brings to light new questions. There was someone out there still cashing Social Security checks for him. We needed to focus in on who was picking those checks up. January 2003. It has been almost six and a half years since the Loudoun County Sheriff's Office found the emaciated body of an elderly man stuffed in a trunk. He was an older man in his mid-70s who, you know, I guess some of us might consider that the prime of our golden years. No one had ever reported him missing. No one had ever left any type of, of clue as to that he was gone. From 1996 to 2003, there was a tremendous amount of effort by particularly Detective Bobby Oxman, who I got to know really well through this case. In 2003, a new avenue opens up to Detective Bobby Oxman when the FBI fingerprint database receives files from the Department of Defense, including the fingerprints of every veteran who has ever served in the military. Detective Oxman is one of those guys who doesn't give up on anything. And she was convinced that this guy's identity would have been somewhere in, in some of the military paperwork because he was that age. Very few people ever at that time didn't belong to some civil service or in the military. 
and she was just convinced that his fingerprints would have been on file. With her tenacity and determination to identify this person and give them a name, she made contact with the federal authorities and it was determined that she would travel to West Virginia where they maintained the military fingerprint records. In January 2003, Detective Oxman and a few of her colleagues go to West Virginia to sort through the archives. We were both sitting there talking to each other and we hear Bobby give kind of a, you know, war hoop. And uh, I look and say, what's going on? They had matched the John Doe's fingerprints with the World War II veteran. The victim was identified as Jack Watkins. We were tickled to death that we got that point, that we were able to identify him. It's just one of those things that you that that really just made your made your year, really. When detectives enter Jack's name into the missing persons database to track down his next of kin, the search comes up empty. There was no missing persons report to be found, even once the victim had been identified. Did he have friends? Why did the friends not report him missing? So we had many more avenues to pursue at that point. And you have to proceed carefully because you don't know who may or may not have been involved based on the fact that he was not reported missing. With no relatives to contact, detectives turned to public records to learn more about their victim. Jasper Jack Watkins Jr. was born on March 21, 1920 in Richmond, Virginia. In November 1941, Jack enlisted in the Army. He voluntarily joined the Army just a week or two before Pearl Harbor. He spent four years in the military. You know, he, he devoted four years of his life to serving the country. I just have all the respect and admiration for that generation, and he's one of them. That certainly was something else that tugged at everyone's heartstrings, that we're investigating the homicide of a, someone who's a, in my mind, a, a war hero. After he got out, you know, he lived a relatively simple life. He worked for a, an auto store, and he worked throughout his career. In 1964, 44-year-old bachelor Jack married 40-year-old divorcee Mary Triplett. Mary had three grown daughters. They were much older. They had families of their own, uh, and they loved Jack. Jack lived in Reisterstown in that modest little home, beautiful yard. He loved to garden and take care of his uh, vegetables, uh, talk to neighbors. In 1989, after 25 years together, 64-year-old Mary passed away from a chronic illness, leaving Jack alone. With the case of Jack, he basically had no real close family members. Jack eventually retired from the auto store and began living on a fixed income from his retirement and Social Security. He was living out his golden years on his Social Security pension and his Western Auto Union pension. He had a very modest home and lifestyle, but he was alone. By January 2003, investigators are finally armed with Jack's life story, 
and must piece together how he ended up dead in a trunk seven years ago. Detectives subpoena Jack's financial records from the last decade of his life. We noticed when I was pulling the records, uh, the credit card receipts, that he was very frugal in his spending. He had, a, like, a gas card. Had, a, you know, a few charges on that each month. And the only thing we could find on his credit card was where he purchased a couple shirts, I believe, at JCPenney. That was all that the gentleman had. So he had excellent credit. He had no bills at that point. Bank statements show that he kept his spending frugal up until 1995, when Jack's spending took a sudden turn. Jack withdrew equity in the house. And in addition, Jack purchased a BMW for $44,000. The vehicle was in Jack's name. The insurance was in Jack's name. He also opened up 26 new credit cards and maxed out most of them. On April 9, 1996, 76-year-old Jack even sold his house. Out of the $90,500 that it sold for, I believe the amount that Jack actually received back was only a little over $3,800. There was nothing left of the house because of uh, the way he remortgaged everything. Here you have a home that was paid for, and now you sell the home for $90,000, and you're getting $4,000 check back. He's destroyed, basically. I mean, he's done. What was behind Jack's sudden spending? And where had the now homeless veteran gone after selling his house? We then attempted to locate where he had lived. This can be done through driver's license records, employment records, social security records. Detectives reach out to the Social Security Administration and quickly make an unexpected discovery. We identified that there was someone out there still cashing the Social Security checks for Mr. Watkins. And since we had the victim and he had been deceased since 1996, it obviously was not the victim that was cashing these checks. So at that point, we needed to focus in on who was picking those checks up. He did not have a next of kin, so it was not like an immediate relative. Obviously, no one's reporting missing, so everybody's a suspect, so to speak. Records requests had shown that Jack had three stepdaughters. But detectives decide not to contact Jack's stepdaughters for now. We don't want him to know that he's dead necessarily because we're not trying to spread that out, that we have that, we still have that ball in our court. Nobody else really knows he's dead except whoever killed him. Instead, they ask Social Security where Jack's checks are being sent. Social Security agents say that in 1996, Jack's address was changed. We were able to track the checks going to Ellicott City, Maryland, to a postal facility. They are being sent to a P.O. box. Whoever maintained the post office box in Ellicott City was responsible for Jack's demise. Coming up, detectives uncover their first suspect and another crime. It was immediately discovered she had a tremendous history of fraud. He had a $100,000 debt in his name that she had charged up. Okay, it's time to commit. 
2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Over six years since Jack Watkins was found dead in an abandoned trunk, detectives with the Loudoun County Sheriff's Department discover someone is still cashing his social security checks. They have traced the checks to a P.O. box in Ellicott City, Maryland. We found the social security check was going there and being cashed. Well, then we could find out who was actually on that box. And we found out that Jack was on that box. But Jack Watkins wasn't the only name on the box. The woman named Nancy Siegel was on the box. And her two daughters were on the, uh, the post office box. None of these names match Jack's stepdaughters or their families. The question detectives need to answer now is, who are these people and how are they connected to Jack? At that point, of course, we got a special agent involved uh, on the Social Security end. We also had the FBI working with us as well as the Postal Inspector's Office. Together, the three agencies come up with a plan for one of the postal inspectors to pose as a post office employee on August 5th, 2003. I put a notification in her P.O. box with a note on it saying, please come to the window, the front window, for your mail. We were able to subsequently set up surveillance and watch to see who was picking up those checks. Then we were able to identify a female individual going to the post office. She was petite, blonde hair. Uh, I believe she was wearing a baseball cap. You know, she was middle-aged in her 40s. She was what I would consider, you know, an attractive woman. When the woman finds the note in her mailbox, she goes to the counter and identifies herself as Nancy Siegel. She was mild-mannered, very friendly, someone that I found easy to talk to at that point. Not nervous. He asked her for additional identification and who was receiving mail at that box. Uh, she just as pretty matter-of-factly listed her name, the name of her daughter, and Jack's name. She listed Jack Watkins, whom, with some prodding, she described as someone who's authorized to receive mail there because he was her father. Well, we knew that wasn't the truth, but we wanted to hear it from her. The postal inspector keeps pressing Nancy. She started asking questions, where are these people? And then she told us Jack was still alive and he was in Pennsylvania. At this point, 
Inspector Carr knew that Jack was already deceased. We knew that she had to have some knowledge whether she actually committed the murder or not, that we still didn't know. After the postal inspector hands Nancy her mail, agents tail Nancy's car. We followed her to a nearby bank where she then went and ne immediately negotiated the checks. At that point, we knew that Nancy was, was pretty heavily involved, at least from the fraud standpoint. All we really had proof of at that point was that she was forging the checks. But who actually had committed the homicide, we didn't know that. Investigators need to know more about Nancy Siegel. So back at the station, they run her name through the system. Nancy Siegel, also known as Nancy Schweitzer, Nancy Geisendoffer, and Nancy Kacharski. It was immediately discovered she had a tremendous history of fraud. Nancy Schweitzer was born on March 30th, 1948, and grew up in Baltimore, Maryland. Her mother had abandoned her uh, from early on, and she was left to be raised by her father. She seemed happy. She loved her father, and she loved living with him, and he was so nice to her, and she made sure he was taken care of. You know, she was like a little mother. They were very close. Nancy's father enjoyed a rough-and-tumble lifestyle in Baltimore's taverns. Meanwhile, Nancy seemed destined for a more wholesome, all-American future. She was a dancer in a Baltimore TV dance show. I think it was called The Buddy Dean Show. She just danced and kibitzed and interacted with people well. I mean, you had to interact with the guest. And she had a great personality. She was fun. She was so much fun and laughed all the time. She had a great laugh. She was just sweet. In 1964, tragedy struck when Nancy's father was jumped by a group of men while leaving a tavern. He died from his wounds two days later. At the age of 16, her father was, was killed. He was uh, murdered in Baltimore. When we heard it was, you know, tragic. And I really felt badly for her because I knew that that's all, you know, that's, that was her only parent. After losing her father, Nancy went to live with an aunt and uncle across town. In 1968, 20-year-old Nancy married her high school sweetheart, Charles Kucharski. The couple soon had two daughters. He seems like a very professional, kind, uh, successful, good-looking man. He seemed like he loved her very much, and she'd say they seemed very happy. And uh, the daughters, you know, she doted on the daughters, and she had a great life, you know? But as investigators scour her background, it appears Nancy's perfect life was built on a lie. In divorce papers filed in 1985, Charles accused Nancy of ruining everything he had worked for. She developed a tendency to gamble and go to Atlantic City and these casinos. She got herself apparently into a lot of debt. She stopped paying the bills and started basically defrauding her own husband using his identity. 
During the course of that marriage, she was taking their personal information and money, running up credit card bills. When they divorced, he had a $100,000 debt in his name that she had uh, charged up. Records show that in 1985, the same year she divorced Charles, Nancy married Ted Giesendofer, and in 1993, Ted also served her with divorce papers. She did the same thing with Ted, ran up credit card bills. She was moving the mortgage payment uh, into her account and not making the mortgage payment. She was using that money, presumably, to gamble. That kind of activity led to the demise of the second marriage. Uh, and so that, that was the pattern with her two husbands. It appears to detectives that throughout both of her marriages, Nancy also racked up a series of petty white-collar charges. She would steal mail from mailboxes, wallets, you know, that contained people's personal identities, their driver's license, credit cards, social security information. This was all in, in various investigative arrest reports. She was getting caught at all these different jurisdictions, which created some coordination problems because none of these other agencies knew quite exactly what she had been doing in the other local jurisdictions. When it was said and done, there were hundreds and hundreds of thousands of dollars that Nancy had either defrauded from people or stolen from people. Despite Nancy's lengthy criminal record, she never served more than two weeks in jail for her crimes. Nancy was very good about talking with people and being able to smooth them over. She was an attractive woman. She was very good on her feet. She was able to sweet talk her way out of any significant jail sentence. She kept getting suspended sentences and probation. So in her case, crime was pain. She was getting away with it. Detectives also discover marriage records for Nancy's third and current husband, Eric Siegel. He was a very successful mortgage-type banker, uh, doing very well for himself. So we needed to find him and interview him as well. We wanted to make sure we had her the best we could, and nothing else we were going to have a great fraud case, uh, but that's not what we were after. Uh, we wanted Jack and Jack's family to have justice, period. Detectives have proof that Nancy had stolen Jack's identity, but they don't know if she was behind his murder. Here's a woman that's fairly small. Uh, you know, how is she crushing someone's throat? We weren't sure if somebody else was involved, but we were excited to find out what she was going to say because Jack was on the post office box. So we knew that the question was going to be asked, what would she say? Coming up, detectives confront Nancy. She told us, I want to tell you everything. I want to tell you everything. I will tell you everything. She had come back to the residence and found him with a cord around his neck. And when detectives tracked down more people from Jack's past, the floodgates opened. They just assumed Jack had met his fairy tale bride until we knocked on the door and let him know exactly what happened. Lifelong con artist Nancy Siegel is the number one suspect in the murder of 76-year-old Jack Watkins. When you say somebody's alive and you know they're dead, I mean, obviously they're a key factor to the case. 
When investigators question Nancy again, they decide to finally spring their trap. I produced a photograph of the trunk, uh, very generic. It was just the trunk, no graphic pictures involved. She immediately dropped her head and started to cry. We informed her that she knew and we knew that Jack was dead. And Special Agent Moeller at that point told her, Nancy, your house of cards is tumbling in at this point. The charade is over. Then she told us that, I want to tell you everything. I will tell you everything. Nancy claims that she met Jack in 1994 at a Children of Alcoholics Anonymous meeting. She said Jack was a father figure to me, and I helped to take care of Jack. She said that he had been diagnosed with dementia, which, according to the medical records that we had obtained, there was no evidence of dementia. Even though detectives know Nancy is lying, they allow her to keep digging herself deeper. I was thinking maybe get her bound up with another story. The more, you know, lying stories she told, the better off we'd be. As Nancy continues, she admits that she briefly cared for Jack in her own home in 1996, but taking care of a dementia patient proved more difficult than she expected. She did try to pawn him off in a number of different places. I think there was two nursing homes, and she tried at a hospital a couple times to maybe get him committed. Through tears, Nancy says that something devastating happened in May 1996. She had actually come back to the residence and found Jack with a cord around his neck. She said he hung himself with an extension cord off a ceiling fan. Well, you know, that's not going to happen. Uh, I mean, you know, you're going to pull the ceiling fan down. You're not going to be able to hang yourself. But when detectives ask for more specifics, Nancy clams up. She never, ever gave us the full detailed explanation of how she disposed of the body. She kept saying the phrase, I'll tell you everything. But in, in fact, she didn't tell us a whole lot, if anything. She was trying to manipulate and control the interview and, you know, all the information that we were trying to obtain, she was trying to manipulate that. Finally, after hours of interrogation, Nancy asks to step out to clear her head. She said, I just need 10 to 15 minutes to clear my head, think about some things, and I'll come back. That was at about 5.50 p.m. I waited to 7 p.m. that night, and she never returned. Although Nancy's interview ended with few answers, Detectives are hopeful they'll learn more by canvassing the neighborhood where Jack resided before moving in with Nancy. We were gonna go hit as many people as we could. Again, we were still concerned somebody else had knowledge other than, than Nancy of Jack's death. We learned before his death, Jack had folks that he ate breakfast with. They called it the breakfast club. Uh, he would go out to different social events. Loudon detectives talked to Jack's friend from the breakfast club, Ralph Hodge. Ralph says that in 1994, Jack brought a new girlfriend by, an attractive blonde woman that matched Nancy's description. Jack referred to her as Nan. Jack met this Nancy and was just head over heels for her. 
Ralph says that alarm bells started to go off when Jack described his new lady's expensive taste. She had Jack purchase her a BMW for $44,000. He was concerned about the relationship and one of Jack's stepdaughters told Jack that she was only after his money. He confirmed that Jack was naive and Jack had his guard down. Jack didn't want to hear that. He wanted to follow his dream of marrying and having her take care of him. I think he was just, uh, you know, he was trusting to a fault. Detectives tracked down Jack's stepdaughters to get more information about his relationship with Nancy. The stepdaughters said he had become very distanced from them during the courtship. So his stepchildren, when they didn't hear from him, they made efforts to call Jack. Jack was never available. He was not able to talk to them. He was away, he was this, he was that. There was always an excuse that they couldn't actually talk to Jack. His stepdaughters say that Jack finally reached out at the beginning of 1996. He had told him he was moving away. She was going to marry him and take care of him. According to his stepdaughters, it was the last time they ever saw Jack. The family assumed that he had moved away and did not want to contact them. They just assumed that Jack had met his fairy tale bride and he was living a life full of joy and peace until we knocked on the door and let him know exactly what happened. And so they had no idea. When investigators speak with Nancy's daughters, it's clear their mother's troubles were no secret. The whole family was aware of her gambling problem. In addition to all the other persons Nancy defrauded, she also utilized both her own daughters' identities and ruined their credit by opening accounts in their names and charging and not paying the bills. How bad do you have it when you're defrauding your own children? I, I just don't understand th that, that process. The girls say they don't know much about Jack Watkins other than their mother's brief relationship with him. During the course of the interview, one of the daughters shown a picture of the trunk. Her response was, hey, that's my trunk. When asked how she could identify the trunk as hers, she said, the nail polish. I used to paint my nails on top of the trunk, and that's nail polish on top of the trunk. For investigators, her daughter's statement is the nail in the coffin for Nancy. It just cemented our initial hunch that she was totally involved in the ultimate death of Jack. It was kind of a point of no return for her. She was arrested that night. Coming up, detectives discover the depth of Nancy's addiction. She was stuck between a rock and a hard place. Another shame, really, but another victim, if you will. On August 15, 2003, professional con woman 55-year-old Nancy Siegel is arrested for Jack Watkins' murder and 19 other counts of fraud. She kind of went off the deep end a little bit. She had contacted her husband and he kind of knew what was going on and her husband actually went out and got an attorney for her 
And from there, he was done with her, was what we were told. With cracks appearing in the Siegel marriage, detectives sit down with Eric Siegel for an interview. That's when Eric reveals that Nancy's crimes go much deeper than they expected. While married to Eric Siegel, her third husband, uh, she actually incurred over $300,000 debt between them in their names. And when confronted, Eric, instead of contacting the police, actually paid the debt off. It was an amazing amount of money and you know, another shame, really, uh, but another victim, if you will. Eric also gives police a clue to Nancy's potential motive in Jack's murder. Eric tells police that he was dating Nancy in 1996, the same year that she was supposedly engaged to Jack. She had a relationship going with uh, Eric. She took everything from Jack, his home, all his credit, his money, he had nothing. She had found another subject, another host, and she needed to make that leap. She could not let Jack report to anybody what had happened to him. She was facing significant jail time, and she saw Jack as a tremendous obstacle from getting married to Eric. She had to do something with him. So based on the findings of the autopsy, I think the premise was that Nancy had been sedating Jack for quite some time with the diphenhydramine, that she had kept him sedated both to keep him in the house and from reporting what was happening. She seemed to be starting to just starve him because he continued to drop weight, in that, and uh, the coroner basically said he weighed about 111 pounds when they found him. When Jack wouldn't die from starvation, investigators believe that Nancy strangled him and dumped his body. The gambling, it caused her character to obviously deteriorate to the point where she felt desperate enough that she had to murder someone. In May 2007, Nancy's trial begins. Prosecutors argue that Nancy convinced Jack to finance her gambling addiction, so he took out a second mortgage and eventually sold his home for her. Jack totally was in a daydream kind of status and just fell in love with the idea of thinking he was going to marry Nancy. And I'm sure that a good portion of that logic came from Nancy's ability to manipulate him. She took total control from him of his life, of all his finances first, and while she was doing that, was able to cut off and sever all his ties that he had with his family members by controlling the calls that come into the house, the calls that go out, and eventually relocating Jack to a, a place no one knew where he went, which was her condominium or apartment in Elegant City. After Jack was dead, prosecutors say that Nancy continued to cash in on Jack's social security and retirement pension. Jack was never reported to be deceased. Uh, so she just continued to take those checks that were coming through the mail, forge his signature, and then get the money for all those years. It wasn't a lot, but it was money that Nancy could gamble with. 
That's how bad she had the addiction. Not denying their clients' financial crimes, the defense argues that Nancy is not a cold-hearted killer. What the defense was trying to do was show that although Nancy might have been a white-collar criminal, that she had defrauded many people throughout her life, they wanted to show that she was not a killer. I mean, I know I hadn't seen her in years, but I, I couldn't believe that could possibly be true. She said he hung himself with an extension cord off a ceiling fan. Of course, that also wouldn't give you drugs in your system. Uh, so there's a number of things that, that didn't match up. On March 16, 2009, the jury announces its verdict, finding Nancy guilty of second-degree murder and several other fraud charges relating to her financially motivated scheme. On April 23, 2009, 60-year-old Nancy Siegel receives her sentence. The little over 33 years that Nancy ultimately received, in my mind, is a death sentence. It's just a great ending to a trial. We wanted Jack and Jack's family to have justice, period. Our investigative group, we're all just ecstatic, ecstatic for Jack. We were able to finally bring justice for Jack and maybe send a message that you don't always get away with this type of behavior. On August 14, 2009, 13 years after his body was found folded into a steamer trunk, World War II veteran Jack Watkins is finally laid to rest. We were able to give him a burial at Arlington National Cemetery with military honor guard, 12-gun salute, folded flag. It was definitely an emotional moment, and it was a proud moment for all of us. He should definitely be remembered for his service to our country. Jack, by all accounts, was a nice, gentle, kind soul, and that's how Jack should be remembered. Nancy is housed at FCI Hazleton, a federal prison in West Virginia with no possibility of parole. She is scheduled to be released on January 7, 2032. She will be 83 years old. It's all a lighthearted nightmare on our podcast, Morbid. We're your hosts. I'm Alina Urquhart. And I'm Ash Kelly. And our show is part true crime, part spooky, and part comedy. The stories we cover are well-researched. He claimed and confessed to officially killing up to 28 people. With a touch of humor. I'd just like sure. to go ahead and say that if there's no band called Malevolent Deity, that is pretty great. A dash of sarcasm and just garnished a bit with a little bit of cursing. This mother lied like a liar like a liar and if you're a weirdo like us and love to cozy up to a creepy tale of the paranormal or you love to hop in the wayback machine and dissect the details of some of history's most notorious crimes you should tune in to our podcast morbid follow morbid on the wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts you can listen to episodes early and ad free by joining wondery plus in the wondery app or on apple podcasts